Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. In this latest episode of the podcast, Peter, we decided to go and talk about a topic that uh, I think is of great interest to us and uh, a great interest to anybody in Europe who, with a, with a mind to the history and culture of, of where we live, and that is to talk about Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, as was, who went from being a simple Corsican to Emperor of France and uh, redrew the map of Europe with some really significant lasting consequences. It's a fascination, particularly for this uh, podcast series, because, as we've said many times, your family comes from Austria and my family comes from England. Therefore, it'd be interesting to compare our perspectives on Napoleon, who, of course, impinged massively on the history of both of our uh, of our countries. Both England and Austria were, were, were changed uh, and challenged by Napoleon in many significant ways at the start of the 19th century. And today, of course, there's a lot of arguments still about what did Napoleon achieve? What did he stand for? And what is his legacy? So I think we might kick off, Peter. I might ask you to uh, to set the ball rolling by uh, setting out what you think uh, Napoleon achieved and what he means to you in, uh, as an Austrian uh, looking at Europe today. Thank you for bringing this subject up. It's pertinent because in May we've just, depends whether you use the word celebrated or lamented, or rejoiced in the fact that Napoleon died 200 years ago, uh, aged 51, in St. Helena, where he was delegated in the end. He was tricked, quite rightly tricked by the British. He thought he could land on the British shores, but instead the boat that was supposed to take him to the shores uh, went on, sailed on, and landed in St. Helena, which is, of course... British overseas territory today, is in the middle of nowhere. So that put him out of action. So, of course, there's a lot of focus on Napoleon to celebrate for those who celebrate. Now, the French are unequivocally celebrating him or lamenting, let's say, his passing to the French, to all French, of all social strata, all parts of society. Napoleon was nothing but a good man who introduced many things that we can talk about later and who was an absolute hero. Whereas you asked me what it's like in my country, he did a lot of damage to Austria. He did a lot of damage at the time to Europe as a whole, to the Holy Roman Empire, which he succeeded in having dismantled so as you rightly said, Jonathan, he redrew the map from the perspective of the Austrians who were pivotal in bringing him down in the end. They were instrumental through the foreign minister, Count Metternich, in tricking Napoleon, trapping him, and finally getting rid of him, which then led to the Congress of Vienna, which we can talk about. 
So from my perspective and all the Central Europeans' perspective, Napoleon was bad. And from the French perspective, Napoleon was unequivocally good. And although Austria et al. on the one hand and the British on the other hand were on the same side against Napoleon, what I'm very curious to hear is your perspective. What made Napoleon so villainous? Why was he your enemy? Why was he the enemy of the British, Jonathan? Okay, well, that's a big question. I mean, it's absolutely right. At the time, he was, and it was partly in the interest of the government to do that, to, he was built up as the great villain of Europe, uh, you know, the, the bogeyman, if you like, as he was actually called the bogeyman, the, le petit corporal, the, you know, the little jumped up Frenchman who uh, who presumed to redraw the maps of Europe. Well, of course, he loomed very large in our in our lives in England because France and England had fought wars many times. Uh, they've uh, been at loggerheads and also allies at many times, swung between. Um, but the English, of course, have always had this, or the British, I should say, have always had this idea that they want to they want to stop anybody taking over control of Europe, whoever that might be, whether that's Napoleon, Hitler, or whoever it might be. We've always resisted that, and we've always tried to play off all the other countries against each other. I think we've talked about that before. But Napoleon was obviously his his achievements as a general were remarkable. You know, his first his great sort of claim to the uh, to the French was that he was going to restore their natural boundaries first of all, which are the you know the Rhine and the Alps and uh, the Mediterranean as he saw it, and um, he did that, and then he pushed on beyond that and created you know started unsettling as you correctly observed the balance of power in Europe um, by expanding it first of all taking over parts of Germany and then fighting wars against in succession you know virtually everybody in in Europe the Austrians the uh, the Russians. Uh, and so on. So he was seen as a big threat. And of course, he also had ambitions, or at least we believe they had ambitions to take over, invade England as well. And had it not been for the, you know, the British Navy, which had control of the seas uh, and continues to have control of the seas, which he never actually mastered himself. And after the Battle of Trafalgar, never, never looked like being able to do that. So there was, there was an obvious interest in uh, resisting the rise of uh, Napoleon for kind of military and strategic reasons. But more than that, of course, like many other countries in Europe, the English were terrified of the French Revolution and what it might do. If the uh, the principles of revolution came to England, they thought that would be thoroughly destabilizing to our whole way of life, which at that time was, we did have a, you know, a sort of democracy, but we still had a, a quite a powerful monarch and a lot of uh, corrupt boroughs and all the rest of it. We had a very kind of fragile system and they were terrified that what happened to um, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette would happen to, uh, would, ha- would happen in England. And so uh, Napoleon cloaked himself in the, you know, as the hero of the revolution, while then going on to become a sort of dictator. It was it's a fascinating progression, uh, but it's not it's not surprising that we saw him as a threat and as an enemy. He was very disparaging about the English. Um, I wrote down somewhere that I read that he described the English as being continually at table, almost always intoxicated and of an uncommunicative disposition. And <laughs> whatever you might think about uh, my lovely country, I don't think that's an entirely accurate uh, description. But he was a bogeyman and I think, um, uh, you know, and a real threat to, to many of our uh, economic and indeed, you know, political interests. I think that of all the descriptions of Napoleon that I've read, the most interesting was what Count Metternich called him. After Napoleon capitulated and went to Elba 
And then shortly later, he escaped from Elba and landed again, I think, near Nice, and then made his way up back to Paris. And on the way, he collected a whole lot of people who became his troops. And I think that's what prompted Metternich to call Napoleon an adventurer who knows not when to stop. And I think that's that's true because it meant that the only way to stop him was to remove him and, and put him on an island in the middle of nowhere because then he couldn't come back. So that, I thought, was a very apt description. I think there was definitely in Napoleon's mind a kind of folie de grandeur, if you like, a huge ego trip, vanity project, because he considered himself to be not a successor to Louis XVI, whom, of course, uh, he, he despised as well. He considered himself a successor to Charlemagne, of course, who was, if you like, you could call him the founder of Europe. In as much as he wanted Europe to be a pan-European area controlled by himself, by Napoleon, rather than the Europe that it was at the time with the, as I said, the Holy Roman Empire, which was not not an ideal um, construct, but it, it worked well enough. They had wars in between, but nonetheless, it was, if you like, under one roof. And this is what Napoleon wanted to change. You mentioned earlier on that um, for the British, the corporal that Napoleon was, the corporal that Hitler was, there are certain similarities between the two. Somebody I saw the other day said that in certain countries, obviously outside France, Napoleon was considered as the French Hitler. That's pretty grim, but inasmuch as Napoleon and Hitler were probably the, the only two characters in the last few hundred years who, who united Europe, <laughs> see what I mean, mind you, under their yoke. So that's not a, a, a pleasant model. But uh, that is definitely Napoleon's folie de grandeur, which he wanted to put into practice. And what he succeeded in doing, first of all, is to split the Holy Roman Empire and created this the Confederation of the Rhine, which essentially meant that three countries within the Holy Roman Empire, first of all, Bavaria, secondly, Baden, and thirdly, Württemberg, they, if you like, broke away from the Holy Roman Empire and joined Napoleon's Confederation of the Rhine, which meant that Napoleon had immediate control over a big, big chunk of the Holy Roman Empire, effectively. At a time when the emperor, the Habsburg emperor, it was always a Habsburg emperor, or nearly always, was weakened himself militarily and financially, having lost four important battles to Napoleon. So they were very much on the back foot. So the point I'm making is that Metternich called him an adventurer who knew not when to stop. Napoleon considers himself to be the natural successor to Charlemagne, which induced him, of course, to put a crown on his head and was considered an enormous upstart by all the ruling houses of Europe. It's fair to say, Peter, I think, that uh, Napoleon was not lacking in self-confidence. 
And so, of course, people like that, in the end, they sow the seeds of their own demise, which is exactly what happened. And when he went to Russia, when he, when he tried to defeat the Russian army and was instead badly defeated himself, the Grande Armée came back in abject submission. Even there, Napoleon refused to believe that the Russians had beaten his army. He claimed that what had beaten his army was the cold, was the weather. So there was the mentality of, you could call him an evil genius. He also said things which were very interesting, like when he talked about China, this in brackets. He said, when China awakens, the world will tremble, which is exactly what happened. So he did have a sort of vision. We need to remember, of course, that Napoleon was not just about military adventurism abroad. He did a lot of things at home as well, uh, which changed the way that France was uh, was run, for example. In terms of his legacy in France itself, he invented the Napoleonic Code, which was the basic law, which is still in place today. He introduced religious freedom and a number of other things like that, which is still in place today. And I think the things that he introduced and that are still in place today, they are the reason why so many French of all parts of the society agree that he was a great man, whereas those on the other side agree that he was very destabilizing to Europe. I would say also that um, what happened Afterwards, or rather after his first capitulation, when Metternich introduced the Congress of Vienna to put the map of Europe back to the condition that it was in before the Napoleonic Wars, and the way that was handled and what that did for Europe in the following 100 years, it sort of kept Europe going for another 100 years, uh, that that was also very interesting. But I think that at the end of the day, even though he also left a certain legacy in Germany as well, where he abolished bondage and introduced also religious freedom. In France, he also created, by the way, a single currency and the Barque de France. So it's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde character of Napoleon. And in the end, of course, it couldn't last Rather bizarrely, from perhaps from your point of view, uh, Peter, given how uh, implacably opposed the Habsburgs were to Napoleon, uh, was the fact that there was a dynastic marriage that Napoleon made in uh, about 1810, as I recall, uh, in which he ended up marrying as his second wife, uh, the daughter of the Austrian Empire himself. One of Metternich's great coups was to persuade Napoleon, who was on the lookout for a bride because his first wife couldn't give him any sons. And so he got rid of his wife and he was looking for a new wife among the daughters of the ruling monarchs of Europe. Metternich suggested to Napoleon that he should take as a bride the youngest daughter of the Austrian emperor. And when he went to the Austrian emperor to suggest that, the emperor was absolutely shocked but of course, like all those marriages in those days, it was purely strategic or tactical, if you like, and actually had the required effect because it preserved, if you like, the Austrian emperor's place on the throne. Um, and so in that respect, it was, it was very clever. You're too modest perhaps to mention this, Peter, but uh, it's fair to say that Napoleon, while he had a very low opinion of most of the 
leaders of other countries uh, he came up against, often with good reason, he did have enormous respect for uh, your great Austrian diplomat, uh, Metternich. Metternich called Napoleon an adventurer who knows not when to stop, whereas Napoleon said of Metternich, the only true statesman I have ever met. And um, interestingly enough, because Metternich lived in what then became on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain, when the Iron Curtain finally appeared, all the archives about Metternich were kept hidden by the Soviet communists and then by the Czech communists. And so a lot of very important information only came to light in 1995. For example, the final meeting between Metternich and Napoleon in Dresden, which is very, very interesting. Uh, and so we were given new information which rounded off the picture with regard to those two important men. But I think it can be said without hesitation that Napoleon tried to destroy Europe to bring it under his yoke, whereas Metternich saved Europe from Napoleon and kept it going for a 100 years. So whether Napoleon was a villain, a murderer, a gangster, or a hero is really in the eyes of the beholder. But I know what he is or was. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I take a slightly different view about that, but not a totally different view about that. I mean, I think he was, if one can say such a thing, I think he was undoubtedly a quite remarkable individual in terms of his, uh, you know, capabilities, his uh, his ability to combine, you know, what many people feel was brilliance on the, on the battlefield. You can argue about that, but he had a kind of win-loss ratio, which was pretty remarkable. And clearly he was very, you know, able to uh, inspire uh, commitment from his troops in a way that others' armies were unable to do at that time. It was one of the keys to success as well as some tactical brilliance. So therefore he had a lot of military accomplishments. Uh, and let's not forget that Europe has spent a lot of time in wars. It's not as if the other regimes are not guilty of, of uh, fighting battles and expanding their territories at different times. And he also had some remarkable, you know, I mean, his, uh, his, his mental capacity by all accounts was was extraordinary. His ability to concentrate on, you know, so many different things at the same time. He could be fighting a military campaign, but also dealing with, you know, political aspects at home and reform. He did introduce a lot of reforms into, into France. And as you say, they have persisted. Uh, and not only in France, but also in some other parts of Europe, as you said. And so to some extent, I mean, I can see why there is this ambivalence about him, because on the one hand, he did accelerate some trends, as you've noted, which were very, uh, would be well received, if you like, by by liberal minded folk around the world uh, in terms of, you know, religious freedom. You know, he did quite a lot on public education as well. He was against intolerance, but he managed to combine that, as you say, with this kind of probably inevitable drift towards uh, authoritarianism. I mean, he liked to call it enlightened despotism and uh, enlightened despots, you know, have existed in the past. And sometimes they are, you know, very popular with the people they are trying to uh, rule over. And, uh, you know, he did do a lot of things in terms of, you know, some of the thing, wonderful things we can see in Paris, uh, buildings and so on, uh, legacies of his. And uh, so he had a, he had a remarkable uh, impact, I think. And one has to acknowledge that fact that he was, as an individual, quite extraordinary. I think... Um, and I, I would distinguish him a little bit from, from Hitler and perhaps later Stalin, who were clearly both of them sort of sociopaths of some kind. 
uh, it's not obvious that that Napoleon was. I mean, okay, he was he could be very you know brutal and and cruel, but he didn't have this kind of uh, megalomania that you had in the, in the case of Hitler and Stalin. I don't think it was a slightly more it's like a different uh, approach he had. He had huge ambition, and I think, you know, as you say, I think it was inevitable that. Well, at least we could say with hindsight, it was inevitable that uh, he would overreach in the end. But of course, you know, like a lot of very, you know, powerful, highly motivated uh, men, mostly men, the easier he found it, and a lot of things fell in his, you know, in his path. You know, the, the, the further he began to believe, I think himself that he was, you know, he was the solution uh, that everybody wanted. And uh, he certainly was no Democrat. Uh, that's certainly clear. So he embraced some of the ideals of the revolution and, and some of the good ideas of the revolution, um, but also um, didn't subscribe to the, the democratic uh, one either, which, of course, was true of most of the rulers of Europe at that time. It, was, it wasn't as if um, the Tsar or, uh, or indeed, you know, the Habsburgs were particularly keen on parliamentary government and, and representation for the people. So I think he, you know, he has this, that's why he has this ambivalent reputation, I think, because he was, he did some very good things. I mean, people don't really remember much what, um, you know, Hitler or Stalin did for their economies or for uh, or for life in their countries. But uh, in France, it's, it is rather different. I mean, the, I suppose the, the other point I'd make is that the, the paradox, of course, is that you know, he did expand the front. He went not only established the frontiers of France, but actually pushed them way, way forward and, and, and tried to go into Russia, as you say. Uh, but that all got lost within about 15 years. It was all back to where it was before. So he didn't actually succeed in holding on to anything of the of the extra places that he sought. And the 19th century, I mean, the Congress of Vienna and, and what followed, it was interesting because, you know, the 19th century was a time of great brilliance of many things in France, but it was also you know, a period when they started a long period of relative decline in Europe, uh, which I think is interesting. They lost wars, obviously, against the Prussians. And, and later, uh, you know, in 1914, they just collapsed. Their, their political regimes were, you know, they kept on flirting with revolution and, and so on. And uh, economically, they remained a kind of largely, you know, a peasant economy and uh, population stopped growing. And so that helped to contribute to this period of relative decline. So even though he is you know, revered as a, France's greatest leader, I suppose you'd say. His legacy was was, was actually quite mixed. Uh, and that probably does stem from the fact that he overreached himself. So I think um, in England, I think it's quite a boom. The most recent biography of of uh, Napoleon is by the English historian Andrew Roberts, who, who is a great admirer of Napoleon for, for many of the reasons, while acknowledging his fact that he, uh, I mean, he is a, a historian of a conservative disposition as well, which is somewhat surprising. And the uh, one of the points I think that people have made is that uh, whereas, you know, in France, Napoleon is really a kind of mostly a hero of the left or left leftish people, the people who look back to the Re French Revolution as the turning point in their history, uh, whereas in other countries he's seen as he's often admired by people of the other end of the political spectrum, which is a kind of perhaps that ex helps to explain the fact that he remains uh, such a popular figure. I wonder what he would have said. Obviously, that was m much later, but you were talking about that he was no lover of democracy, nor were the Habsburgs, nor were the others. It reminds me of the penultimate Austrian Emperor Francis Joseph, who reigned for a long, long, long time. When he was asked by someone to define his own role, they asked him, what is your role, sir? And he replied, my role is to protect my people from my government. I thought that was a very interesting statement because do you prefer a monarch who's there to protect his people from his government 
or do you prefer outright direct democracy? That's a question we can discuss another time. Um, so I think those two emperors would have had the same thing in common. Neither is in favor of democracy. Both would have claimed to be protecting their people from their government. And I think that would make for an interesting, interesting discussion. But um, I'll try and get hold of that book by the British author about Napoleon and see whether there are some, there are always new things one learns when you seep through these things. And I thought this was a very interesting exchange of viewpoints. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think, you know, you've got to think, I mean, he also inspired what some people used to say was the greatest novel of all time, War and Peace, you know, which is a kind of uh, uh, exposition of uh, of how history evolves. And it's it sparked a huge, I mean, as a, someone who studied history, there's a huge debate in, you know, amongst historians about whether which are the most important factors in, in history. Are they the kind of underlying social and economic trends that have, you know, industrialization and, and the, you know, uh, the creation of a large industrialized working class and so on? Are these, you know, the kind of Marxist approach? Uh, and a set against that are the, are the kind of great man of history people who, historians who think that actually it is individuals who make the difference at the margin, if you like, and they can reshape things. And I think, you know, personally, my view is that there's no doubt that individuals have to operate within the kind of, if you like, the tides of history where they happen to be born, uh, but they can have a huge impact on shaping uh, uh, events. And we've seen that, uh, unfortunately, we've seen that <laughs> too many times, whether we're talking about Napoleon or, or Hitler or Stalin. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's something we've had to live with for many years. And maybe maybe we're going to see again in uh, in future years. So I think it's fascinating, and Napoleon's fascinating in that context as well, because, you know, there really isn't much of a halfway house between saying he was a, a great man who manipulated, you know, everything in his in his wake and created this uh, this empire that then crumbled, or whether he was just, as some French historians for a while sort of claimed, he was just the kind of the logical consequence of the revolution and the way it developed, the, the terror and then the need for, for order and so on. And they point out that he he actually in the in Napoleonic code the key thing for them is that he actually you know made such great play about the importance of property rights, which you know before that was entirely different in France and you know nobility had their own laws as well. So he he did impose some order and he actually supported this idea of if you like um, you know entrenching the rights of property owners, uh, which has been a very important feature of you know life since then. Yes, and Stalin did no such thing. So. Indeed. <laughs> no, exactly. So, I mean, I think in the great pantheon of European uh, dictators, if you like, uh, I think he's, he certainly comes in a, a distant third behind Hitler and Stalin on the on the evil front. But, you know, the consequences of what he did obviously were, were very significant. A lot of soldiers died in many countries and regimes fell. And, you know, for people, you know, ordinary people in those countries, they were turbulent times, but they've been turbulent times for many years, I think. And uh, occasionally we find these periods when people want to reach out for a strong man to really impose order. And uh, unfortunately, not many strong men are able to kind of relinquish the relinquish the mantle when uh, when they've achieved whatever it is, the short term ambitions they had. So I think Napoleon would be a good example of that. I mean, a lot of people supported him because he uh, restored order after the revolution and, you know, gave France back its uh, natural boundaries and, and so on. Uh, but then, as you say, he couldn't stop. And that's what led to the the tragedy. If he had stopped, I don't suppose we'd be talking about him anything like as much as we do now. Especially 200 years after his death. 
I mean, maybe you or I can achieve the same thing that in, in the 200 years after our death, people will continue to talk about us. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Indeed. I can't help feeling they may have some better things to talk about. But uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. And the Napoleon legacy is, is huge. I mean, if you go to Paris and you go to his tomb, you know, there's a steady stream of tourists there. And it is rather impressive, I have to say. And, you know, and the Invalide and the whole kind of setting of that part of Paris, you can you can feel it. I think you can feel the Napoleonic kind of, uh, you know, legacy is there. There's a certain movement around Europe, if, if that's the right word, which it probably isn't, which would like to have Napoleon's tomb removed from where it is now and taken back to Corsica, and he should be buried in Corsica where he belongs. But I think that project is a non-starter. Well, I can't think of any recent French president who would even begin to contemplate that idea. Some of them are said to have had, I mean, that's an interesting tradition in France, you know, la gloire and the whole kind of idea of, of the uh, charismatic leader who's prepared to do what France needs. You know, you think of de Gaulle or you think of more recent presidents, Sarkozy and uh, or maybe Macron too, in a way, are trying to kind of uh, cloak themselves in the Napoleonic uh, tradition. Absolutely. And they were all there uh, when there were these festivities. I think it's the 6th of May. I, I saw some photographs. There were a lot of people there, not only of the Napoleon family and Bonaparte family, but also of families who were fighting against Napoleon at the time. And of course, you mentioned the presidents. They were all there. Uh, left, right, they were all there standing at attention. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Well, you can't uh, you can't deny them that uh, moment of glory. And of course, you yeah. know, I don't suppose there'll be much celebration of the 200th anniversary of the death of Metternich or a uh, uh, Duke of Wellington, make going to mention, who won the Battle of Waterloo in the end and uh, gets a very kind of short shrift from French historians, mostly as, a, you know, he was just a bit of a kind of tough, insensitive fellow, didn't have any other kind of... I mean, he became prime minister of, of the UK. He didn't, you know, and it was quite a bellicose one, but he didn't uh, he didn't subvert the country and go and take it on a mild, you know, expansionist uh, phase. Though, I mean, the British Empire did do quite well, I have to say, as a result of all that. It did. I wanted to avoid the, the interesting question, I mean, that you just mentioned, but we can talk about that another time, of whether it really was Wellington who beat Napoleon ah. at Waterloo. <laughs> Or whether it was Blücher, you know, yes. quite interesting, you know, two different opinions. I'm sure you know more about it than I do, but that was an interesting kind of final question. Well, wait, there's an awful lot of mythmaking goes on and you know that, you know, history is written by the victors. So yeah. who knows? I mean, who cares in a way who, who was really who responsible? But I mean, at least the result was the one that uh, certainly as far as English are concerned was uh, was the right one. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we have <laughs> we continue to celebrate that rightly or wrongly. Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Not at all. It's been very interesting and I uh, look forward to further conversations of this sort. So do I. See you in a couple of weeks, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.